quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Today, the invaders launched a missile strike at Odessa, a city where almost every street has something memorable something historical. But for the Russian army, it doesn't matter. That was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on May 7th. Russia had just struck the coastal city of Odessa, and shelling had destroyed a museum in Kharkiv dedicated to an 18th century philosopher and poet. Zelensky claims that strikes like these on cultural centers and monuments are part of a calculated campaign to wipe out Ukraine's history and identity. Every day of this war, the Russian army does something that is beyond words. But every next day, it does something that makes you feel it in a new way. And yet, even as Russian shells rain down, many artists and musicians have continued their work in hopes of keeping Ukrainian culture alive. My guest today is Fiona Sinclair Scott, the global editor of CNN Style. She has the story of how one Ukrainian artist and his team of curators put themselves in harm's way to get a key piece of art out of a war zone and on to the world stage. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Rind. Fiona, what do we know about the damage inflicted by Russia on cultural institutions and sites during this war? Well, I think we've seen a lot of damage inflicted and obviously the highest toll is the is the human toll, is the human loss of life through this war. Sure. But what we've also seen is a tremendous loss to culture. UNESCO is is currently quoting over 130 cultural landmarks that have been destroyed or lost over the course of the last few months. That's things like museums, libraries, churches, historical monuments, you know, things that have huge cultural value to the population and to the people of Ukraine that may have been lost forever. So really early on, as the invasion was just sort of underway, we saw a huge effort by people within the cultural community and the cultural sector, but also just regular citizens coming out to protect some of these cultural landmarks and spaces. We saw stained glass windows being boarded up. We saw sandbags being put down around statues. We heard about archives being protected or moved elsewhere in an effort to preserve these pieces of culture because I think the Ukrainians were aware that it would become a target. And can you tell me a little more about Ukrainian art, Fiona? What are some of the common themes we see in it? So I think the first thing to know about Ukrainian art is not a lot of people know much about Ukrainian art. <laughs> you know, it hasn't been the most internationally visible art scene. 
And ironically, what we're seeing now is a huge amount of interest in Ukrainian art and culture because of the war. And we can talk later about, you know, what that means to contemporary artists today. But, you know, looking at the broader Ukrainian cultural landscape, it's filled with creative people. Right now, you know, in the sort of modern uh, Ukrainian art scene, you've got some really impressive fashion designers, some really incredible artists, you have writers, you have film directors, you know, it's a rich cultural sector. And that goes back decades through history. Talking about common threads, I mean, whether it was through the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, um, post-Soviet times, or even now, I think a lot of the creative community are bound by this desire to bolster, protect, and define a unique Ukrainian culture against Russian repression. Like separate from Russia, completely its own thing. Yeah, I think they feel a sense of mission to define what Ukrainian culture is, be it through folklore, tradition, um, landscape, language. And you've seen that over the course of history. You have poets and writers. There's a poet called Taras Shevchenko, um, 19th century poet, who a monument um, of his image was actually recently destroyed by what we think were Russian forces. And he was a poet who was very outspoken in his writing, sort of writing in, in satire about Russian oppression of Ukraine, and so outspoken that he was exiled, um, you know, and, and monuments are now being destroyed of his. So it, it's a reminder of how far back in history these creative people have been trying to speak about their unique uh, culture and place in the world. Then you have artists like Maria Primashenko, who died some 25 years ago now, but, you know, one of the most important 20th century fine artists from Ukraine and a museum that was holding what we think were dozens of her artworks was um, set on fire. So, you know, you're seeing these really important figures through cultural history, and you're seeing their legacies attacked again right now. And when you look at what they stood for and what they stood to represent, you know, again, they were the voices that were, were trying to define Ukrainian culture. And I know you've been reporting on one particular piece called The Fountain of Exhaustion. What should we know about that? So The Fountain of Exhaustion is an installation artwork by a Ukrainian artist called Pavlo Makov. He's an artist in his 60s, very highly regarded in Ukraine, perhaps not a household name in the rest of the world, but very, very well-respected um, member of the artistic community in, in Ukraine. And he won a bid in 2020 to represent Ukraine at the Venice Biennale. The Venice Biennale is, for those who haven't heard of it, it's sort of the Olympics of the art world. It is a huge international event held every other year where the artist community from around the world comes together um, to represent their countries on this global stage in Venice. And you see, um, and Pablo was uh, 
was nominated as the artist to represent Ukraine at the Venice Biennale. So he and his team decided to reimagine an artwork that he has been working on for a long time now. This project, which was 27 years old, you know, unfortunately, is extremely uh, contemporary now. It's extremely... The Fountain of Exhaustion started as a kind of conceptual idea in the early 90s, right as um, the people of Ukraine had voted in a referendum um, for, for independence. And he was living in Kharkiv as a young artist and was watching his country transition into an independent state. And the idea of the Fountain of Exhaustion at the time was um, to reflect how difficult that process of transition was and how exhausting it was for, for the people, for the economy. Well, this is a metaphor. And over time, he played with this concept. It, it, it took different forms. It was sketches. There were other kind of installations. Um, but, but the piece that he wanted to take to Venice was going to be the first time that it was a fully functioning, large-scale fountain of actual water. So the, the structure itself, just to give you a picture, is um, 78 bronze funnels designed in such a way where water starts at the top of this funnel and trickles down, dividing and dividing and dividing as, as you go down through the triangle shape. And it's, uh, it's recirculating. So once it hits the bottom, it's pushed back up to the top and, and, it, and it goes on again. Um, so, so they had this artwork in mind and they were close to completing the project. They tested it about a week before uh, Russia's first attack on, on Ukraine on the 24th of, of February. They tested it and it worked and it was a, you know, by all accounts, a joyous, happy moment for the artist and, and his curators. But then fast forward a week and they found themselves in a, in a completely different reality. I guess you all thought this project in Venice wasn't going to happen. Well, well, you know, when, when your son is getting close to you at five o'clock in the morning and saying, Father, they began. You know, definitely you don't think about your projects in Venice. You know, Russia launched its attack and we saw cities like Kyiv and Kharkiv um, being hit very early on. So I think the team at that point had, um, had some decisions to make. They were obviously extremely worried about their, you know, personal safety, the safety of their family, the sort of immediate concerns. But they also wanted to figure out how to get this piece of artwork to Venice. Um, you know, they were supposed to be in Venice in two months' time. It was the 24th of February, um, late evening, like 7 p.m. And I started my journey without a very understandable route. There basically was just one road from Kiev at the time that was accessible. And so one of the curators, Maria Lanko, boxed up the bronze funnel components of the artwork and set off in her car on, on the 24th of February and drove out of Kiev and drove for six days. Well, in Ukraine, I was more or less alone, but then two of my colleagues who were then in the west of the country joined me and we crossed the border together. Eventually crossing the border into Romania with these pieces of the installation. 
and 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 drove across Europe, stopping in Hungary, and and finally making her way to Austria. She landed in in Vienna um, and stayed there for a bit to rest, and then made it to Italy. So, you know, she eventually made it to to Venice, um, and was joined by the rest of her team, including Pablo, the artist. I was taking Tani with her mother and I heard the sound of the missiles over me and then the explosion about two seconds later. They, they... Pavlo Makov, meanwhile, was in Kharkiv with his wife and, and family and the city saw very heavy fighting um, and, and bombing quite early on and so they ended up in a bomb shelter where they slept for several nights. Uh, and then I received the phone call from Maria Lenko and she said that she managed to get the funnels in. I understood it was quite a, quite a serious decision because uh, at that time I realized that it will be important really for the Ukraine to be represented. On the and then he made the decision uh, along with his wife and a friend um, to leave the city. And so he, he took his elderly mother, who's in her 90s, and his wife and a friend, and they, they got in his car and he drove them out of the city in what sounded like a, a fairly dramatic um, exit. And then they, they eventually made their way by car across Europe and, and ended up in, in Venice too. More of my conversation with Fiona Sinclair Scott after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited-edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. So, I mean, that is just an incredible story. This whole team risking their lives, going on these dangerous car journeys just to get this piece of art out to Venice for this big exhibition. How did they describe their feelings around their role in bringing this art to the world stage and the role art can play during a time of war? Having uh, been able to meet them in, in Venice in the days leading up to the, the, the project being unveiled, I think what struck me was just an incredible sense of 
resilience um, and determination, but also a sort of pragmatism. I think they felt like it was all they could do, and so and so they just did it. I don't feel myself even an artist here. I much more feel myself as a citizen who who has his duty to represent his country, and that's it. As well as, as all the curators, we have the same idea. The way that they tell their stories isn't one of sort of drama and, and bravery, you know. It's a story of we felt this is important, you know, and we had no choice but to, you know, share our message. One of the other curators, Lizabetta, is um, an incredible, an incredible woman. She was heavily pregnant um, at the time of the sort of initial invasion. And she too made it to, to Venice, but with a very small child in tow, she had her baby in Lviv in March um, whilst this was all going on, you know, and she was still able to to make it to Venice and to represent her country and to, and to talk about this project. And, you know, what she told us, um, you know, ahead of being in Venice was you know, art is important because it shows that we're still here um, and that we're not just war victims. I think that was important too. You know, you get portrayed as a people who are victims of war and I think Ukrainian people also want the world to know that they are more than that. But I'm not quite sure it can save the world, you know, but but it, it can help to save the world. I'm always saying that art is... No, art is more a diagnosis than it's a medicine. It's definitely like that. And if So... I think talking to, to Pavla Makov, one of the things that really stood out to me was he said, um, art isn't medicine, you know, it, it can't stop a war, but it can act as a diagnosis. My interpretation of that is art has this incredible ability to help people understand what's going on. We talk about culture and context a lot in the work that we do, and I think Art provides that context. It's one of the instruments of creating culture of, of, of the society. It helps people interpret events that are happening around them. You know, so from his point of view, he said, my art can only do so much. It's not going to stop a war, but it might help people understand why it happened in the first place. And that's why, you know, for us, for Ukraine, it is very important to invest in culture and um, uh, in, invest in what we believe um, the Ukrainian art and culture is in order to secure ourselves in the long-term perspective. Now, art won't stop the war right now, but it might stop the next one. And his curator, Maria Lanko, um, sort of echoed that. She said, we know that art can't stop a war, but it might stop the next one. And so as the war kind of drags on in east of Ukraine especially, we see some Ukrainians getting back to somewhat normal life as much as they can. Is there a hunger for cultural activities, a night at the theater, that kind of thing, as they try to live on through their culture? Yeah, it's it's a bizarre thing to think about um, when we've seen these really heavy scenes of war. But there are parts of Ukraine where some form of normal has returned, looking at Lviv, a city that has managed to avoid heavy fighting um, and attacks for the most part. They recently reopened their opera house and put on a, a, a ballet. They closed their doors on the 24th of February and reopened them 
um, in early May, the the theatre said they could only seat and as many people as they could safely put in a bomb shelter wow. if they needed to. So they had 300 people in the theatre on that on that first night because that's the number of places they had in the in the bomb shelter on site which just gives you a sense of what they're having to navigate and what the the variables and the risks that they're having to factor in um, just to put on a night at the opera so fiona after pavlo and his team made their dangerous journey to venice displayed the art did they go back to Ukraine? What What is their status? Um, hi, Fiona. So, um, yeah. so I heard from Lizabetta, um, one of the curators on, on Pablo's team, uh, this morning. She sent me a voice note updating me on where she is and and where the rest of her colleagues are and where and where Pablo is and and they're good. They're okay. Um, uh, Pablo Markov, the artist, um, he after Venice, he moved to Florence. When I left them in, in Venice, what struck me was they were in a, all in a state of limbo in terms of where they would go next. But Lisabetta, Maria and Pablo are all still um, in, in Europe um, and Pablo is still in Italy. He's in Florence and working on a show at a gallery that he hopes to open in October. Um, Lisabetta and Maria, who are co-founders of their own gallery called the Naked Room Gallery, a Kiev-based gallery, which obviously they haven't been able to have open whilst they've been away um, and, and whilst the war has been ongoing. They're actually hoping to take it on the road. But uh, we will do some pop-ups, we will do some collaborations with other institutions and we will participate in art fairs. You know, what they've said is it's, a, it's unfortunate how this has all come about, but the reality is there's an increased interest in Ukrainian contemporary art now, and so they do plan on making making the most of it. And we also feel this responsibility to sell something, uh, not just to become rich. I don't think it will happen in the next several years, but at least we can feed our families, feed our artists, and you know. You're seeing that kind of entrepreneurial spirit across the community. You know, I think you're seeing this this effort by Ukrainian people to make sure that their voices are heard and make sure that people are able to see the, the work of the Ukrainian cultural community around the world. So I expect that we will see plenty more exhibitions over the course of, of the weeks and months that, that follow. Fiona Sinclair Scott, thank you. Thank you. And if you want to see what the Fountain of Exhaustion actually looks like, you can check out video over at CNN.com slash war. We'll be back next week. And if you're looking for even more from Ukraine, check out CNN Five Things. They'll keep you up to date with the very latest. Just follow wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by me, David Rhine, along with Audrey Horowitz and Paolo Ortiz. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Colin Wallace, Max Burnell, Angelica Persley, and Elizabeth Roberts. Finally, a big shout-out to producer Nathan Miller. 
He was a big part of making this show happen from last season all the way to this season. He's moving on from CNN, but we wish him luck on his next adventure. I'm David Ryan. I'll talk to you next time. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.